So I just warn you before we start class today that this is going to be tough stuff. This is going to be very atypical Chabad teachings, but we're not going to brush over it. We're going to study it and we'll deal with it. We're going to work it through together. It's a new chapter and let's understand where we are. So the Tanya started out to explain one verse in the Torah. And that verse is, Kikarov elacha hadaver me'od beficha uvavavcha la'asoso. That means that it is close to you, very close to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Now, is it really that easy to fulfill everything of the Torah? Not just the way you act, not just the way you speak, but even the way you think in your inside, in your heart? So the Alter Rebbe said, I'm going to explain it to you in the long and short way. The first 25 chapters explain to us that it is very much within the reach of every single Jewish person to be able to keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Nevertheless, starting with chapter 26, the Alter Rebbe said, even if you're doing everything right, but if you are lazy, if you are sluggish, you're not going to be able to give it your all. If you're lazy and sluggish, you will not be able to fight with your fullest vigor. You have to be rid of these conditions. And these conditions are really symptoms of a deeper cause. And they were sadness. And that's what we dealt with up until now. And the other one was Timtum Halev, a dull heart. So when it came to sadness, we we looked at all different kinds of sadness. We looked at sadness stemming from material problems, sadness stemming from spiritual problems and even when we were talking about sadness stemming from spiritual problems there were different kinds there were sadness from actual sins and then there was sadness from sinful thoughts and then there was sadness from sinful thoughts that you experience during worship but now we're going to deal with the next condition the next condition is timtum halev ka'evan timtum halev means a dull heart this term is from the talmud the Talmud teaches us, Rabbi It's taught in the school of Rabbi Ishmael. Avera metamtemes shel adam. Sin stupefies the person's heart. Rashi explains the term itemes, and he explains it to mean that he, it seals it off. So we're dealing with a numb heart. This is the way it usually works. The way it usually works is, and this is the Chabad method. Chabad stands for Chachma. Bina da'at. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. That's the way it's generally translated. If you want to translate it in a way that, in a Kabbalistic style, it would be uh, the inspiration. That seminal point was Chachma. And then cogitation, working it through, was Bina. And then Da'at was applying it. So if you do the method right, if you use your mind to understand, it will naturally give birth to emotions. That's what we learned earlier in Tanya, that the Midais are Toldais Chabad, that the emotions are the offspring of the intellectual faculties. So the normal way is a person studies about something, they understand it well, and then their heart responds with emotion. That's the normal way. But then there is the ailment. The ailment is a person studies and they're doing everything right. They understand what they're studying because, of course, if you don't understand what you're studying, you can't have an emotional response. So they really understand what they're studying. They take time to think about it. 
And this is an important step that people skip. You know, they hear something and then they move on. If you really want to integrate and assimilate something into your personality, you need to stop and think. People don't stop and think, especially not today. You know, they're quickly popping ear pods in their ears and getting busy with other things, talking, talking, talking. Stop and review what you learned in your mind. Then you're making it personal. And when you meditate on it, it is so natural that your heart will bear a corresponding emotion. Like for example, think about somebody very important in your life. Think about their good qualities, their sterling character, their kindness. Suddenly, you have feelings of warmth gushing in your heart because your mind gave birth to these emotions. This is so natural that the previous Rebbe compares it to the nature of the sun to give light. The nature of the soul to give life. This is the totally normal response. You think about something, you understand it, you meditate on it, your heart will bear emotion. Now look at somebody who walks by a very big fire. He approaches a huge bonfire and as he approaches the bonfire, it's inevitable that his body will feel heat. What if his body doesn't feel heat? If his body doesn't feel the heat, it means that he has an ailment. It means that he has a sickness and he needs to find a cure. So while the normal natural response is that when you understand something well and you meditate on it, you're going to have an emotional response. If you're not having an emotional response, it means that there is a spiritual sickness and you need to find a cure to heal you of this condition because this condition can seriously get in your way of serving Hashem. So I'll say it probably a few times during class today, and that is it's tough stuff. And think about your teachers, your childhood teachers. There were those teachers that, you know, okay, whatever, you talk in class, I don't care. You, You don't want to take the test. You can have a modified test, sweetheart. You don't have to take the big one. You can take the modified test. Nice about everything, never gets hard on you. And then there was that teacher that was firm but gentle, had strong expectations, would no way let you take that modified test. If you interview people and ask them which teacher they like better, the overwhelming majority of people like the teacher who was stronger and firmer and had higher expectations. And that's because that teacher truly believed in you. That teacher is the one who brought out your potential. So the Altareb is our teacher here. And he believes in us and he's bringing out our potential. And yes, we can do the inspiration only method, but then we will not be able to reach our fullest potential. If we want to reach our fullest potential at times, we're going to have to take this tough stuff. So bearing that in mind, we're going to have to now create our own crisis because, you know, sometimes a person is just numb. Their heart is numb and then God forbid they go through a crisis and suddenly they're able to feel again because the crisis broke through to their heart. Nobody should have to experience a crisis. So we're going to have to make our own crisis so that we can now pull off that dead skin and start feeling stuff again. So here we are, chapter 29. In chapter 26, the Alter Rebbe stated that both depression and dullness of the heart produce a state of sluggishness, which prevents a person from overcoming the evil inclination of the animal soul. He therefore outlined in chapters 26 to 28 methods of overcoming depression arising from various causes. In this chapter, the Altareba will discuss means of dealing with dullness of heart, timtum halev, 
after describing the state more clearly. Ach, ait achas tzarech l'shetz eitzais benafshais ha-benonim. Those whose souls are of the level of benonim must first seek, must seek, means of contending with yet another difficulty. Meaning, aside from sadness, that was the first difficulty we were dealing with. Now we have to seek how to get rid of another problem that we contend with. And that is, Occasionally, and even frequently, they experience a dullness of the heart. Okay. So we're looking at two conditions of timtum. Timtum is sealed off, numb, dull. One condition is what we're speaking about in this chapter, and that is timtum halev, a numb or dull heart. There is a far more serious condition that is called timtum hamayach, which is a numb mind. We only are going to mention it briefly in this chapter, but that's not what we deal with in this chapter, and that's because this chapter speaks to benoni. And a benoni is somebody who has control over their mind. But let's look at this other condition, timtum hamayach. Timtum hamayach is like this. There's three stages in coming from understanding something to actually producing an emotion. So a person is allergic to peanuts. And this person is very rare. He's actually brilliant. He's a scientist and he specializes in health. And he understands that this condition is very harmful for him and he cannot eat peanuts. Normally, he first understands the information, he assimilates it. Then step two would be that he has a strong intellectual conviction. I cannot touch peanuts. This is dangerous. And then thirdly, he's going to have an emotional response. That if he sees peanuts, or maybe even hears the word peanuts, some type of emotion of fear or aversion is going to be felt in his heart. Now, a person who can't get to stage three, where he doesn't produce an emotion, he has timtum halev, a numb heart. But nevertheless, he's not a danger to himself because in his mind, he is resolute that peanuts are dangerous. He can't feel it. But in his mind, he understands very clearly that this is something to be avoided. But then there's another person, and this is not about being, having a low IQ. This person could be brilliant. He understands all the science behind it. He can explain it almost better than anybody else, and yet he doesn't care. It has no bearing on his behavior. Even intellectually, it doesn't settle within him, so it doesn't assimilate within his mind. This is somebody who suffers from the condition of Timtum Hamayach, a numb mind. The advice that we're going to visit from the Zohar speaks about both these conditions, and that's to deal with both of these. But this chapter deals with specifically a numb heart. Okay, so what's the problem with his heart? It is as though it has turned to stone. So this expression of a heart of stone comes from the Navi, Yechaskel. And he speaks about the heart that's impenetrable, and he calls it lev ha'even, a heart of stone. In contrast to the healthy heart, the heart that is impressionable, the heart that is permeable, he calls that lev basar, a heart of flesh. So this person is experiencing a numb heart that has become hard like stone. And try as they might, they cannot open their heart in prayer, which is by definition, the service of the heart. So the Torah tells us, 
in Parshas Ekev, how we should serve Hashem, and it says, Ula avdai and to serve him with all of your hearts. And the Talmud speaks about this and asks, Ezehi avayda shehi balev, what is the service that is in the heart? Have aimer zait fila. We need to say that this is prayer. Prayer is called the service of the heart. On a very simple level, the reason why it's called the service of the heart is because it requires concentration of the heart. But on a deeper level, the reason why it's called the service of the heart is because it's supposed to affect emotions within your heart. Prayer is a very powerful tool in the life of the Benoni. Because as we learned in chapter 12, when a person prays, the experiences that are not usually available to somebody of his caliber are available to him in prayer. Meaning, let's say this person normally cannot experience a full-fledged love of Hashem. When it comes to prayer time, in the supernal world, it's a time of meichin de godless, an expanded consciousness. When we pray, we can tap into that energy and we can experience that and have full-fledged emotions. And then even as we go about our daily affairs and we no longer experience that full-fledged emotion, the memory of that emotion that we experience during prayer is enough to power us during the day. So it's so crucial to have this experience of proper prayer. And yet a person who has a numb heart is not able to experience this feeling. It's very interesting that a lot of people don't have a problem feeling excited right away when it comes to Torah study, right away when it comes to mitzvah performance, but suddenly when it comes to prayer, people have a hard time. And you wonder why. And my husband explained to me something very amazing, and that is that when it comes to Torah study or to mitzvah performance, the relationship is already there. You don't have to create anything. This is Hashem creating all the music and all the fireworks and you just reach in and tap, and you're part of that. As, as soon as you open up that Torah book, your heart is singing because the relationship is already there. When it comes to prayer, Hashem asks you to come speak to Him, but you're the one who has to make the magic. You're the one who has to create the fireworks. You're the one who has to create the emotion. It's up to you to come from the ground up and create this connection experience. So if you're not in it, you're not feeling any music. On the other hand, when it comes to Torah study, Hashem is making the music, you just have to tune in. So this is something that requires an extra level of courage, an extra level of energy. And if your heart is numb, if your heart is not feeling the vibrancy, you're stuck. You can't experience that prayer experience. Chassidus explains that prayer is the service of the heart in a twofold sense. One, it takes place in the heart, for in prayer one strives to extend his intellectual apprehension of godliness into the realm of emotions experienced in the heart, the love and fear of God. So prayer is something that happens in the heart. You try to take what you learn and apply it so that you feel it. And the second reason is the object of prayer is the heart. For in prayer, one tries to transform the nature of his heart, to steer it away from the mundane desires to which it naturally inclines, and to direct it instead towards a yearning for the spiritual and the godly. To accomplish both these objectives, the prayer must, of, the heart must, of course, be open and receptive, and thus, Timtum Halev is a major hindrance. In a Hasidic discourse, the Al-Durebbe calls prayer the Chut Hashidra, the spinal cord. Just as the spinal cord supports all the 248 limbs of the body, prayer supports all the 248 positive mitzvahs. 
it is what gives them their staying power. It gives them their energy and their vitality. Prayer is so important. So that's one problem. That's one area of service that gets deeply affected by somebody having a numb heart. And then there's another one. Also, the heaviness of, in his heart prevents him at times from waging war against the evil impulse and sanctifying himself in permitted matters. So remember that we learned previously in chapter 27 how this is actually a biblical injunction. That means sanctify yourself in that which is permitted to you. There's the very black and white. So what you can't do, you can't do. That doesn't take a lot of energy. You know you can't do this. What you have to do, you have to do. Again, this doesn't take an extra level of courage. You need to do it because you need to do it. What takes superhuman effort almost is those gray areas. Where you decide, where you're the one who calls the shots. Do I really need to say this right now? Should I wait another minute before I eat this? You're allowed to, it's kosher. The thing that you wanna say is fine, it's permitted. And yet you're showing an extra level of restraint. In order to show an extra level of restraint, you have to be on top of your game. You have to have a bold heart. You need to be vibrant. If you're feeling numb, you can't muster up the courage to fight valiantly in this gray area. As the Alter Rebbe goes on, as the Alter Rebbe explained in chapter 27, it is the task of the Benoni to suppress the desires of the heart, meaning by not eating as soon as he has the urge to do so. This requires a battle with one's evil impulse, which demands that he gratify all of his desires. When his heart is dull, heavy, and insensitive, he cannot fight the evil impulse. So he's ill. He has a sickness. The sickness is that his heart will not respond emotionally to that which he knows. Now we have to figure out how are we going to deal with this sickness. The Alter is not making up new advice. He's giving us advice that has already been taught in the Holy Zohar. In this case, the advice given in the Holy Zohar is, okay, take a deep breath for a second. Now listen. The Amar Rav Mesifta began Eden. Aa de la Salik Bain Ahira Mivachinle. As the president of the Academy of Gan Eden said, a wooden beam which does not catch fire should be splintered. So you have this huge log, throw it into the fire and it's not catching fire. You would think maybe make the fire bigger, intensify the heat. Don't do that. Instead of dealing with the fire, deal directly with the wood. Splinter it, crush it, and then a spark will set it on fire. Now, Gufa de la Salik Beinahara Dinishmasa Mivachinle. And similarly, a body into which the light of the soul does not penetrate should be crushed, and thereby the body becomes receptive to the soul's light as the Zohar continues. Okay? So the Zohar says like this a, a wooden beam is not catching fire, don't intensify the fire. And similarly, don't try to strengthen the wood. Splinter the wood and it's going to catch fire. Like for example, let's say a cup won't hold your drink. The way to get the cup to hold the drink is by strengthening the cup. You'll seal the holes and then it's gonna hold the beverage. This is a different situation. In this situation, we're not strengthening the wood. Strengthening the wood would be counterproductive. What we're doing is we're dealing directly with the wood, 
by splintering the wood and smashing the wood. The Torah tells us in Parsha Shaiftim, it's actually a question, but it's also interpreted as a statement. Kiha Adam for is a man a tree of the field? And it's also interpreted, a man is a tree of the field. So the way to deal with this wood, with this tree, is the same way to deal with us. Doesn't mean intensify your meditation efforts. If, you're in, know, if you know what you know and you understand it well and you're meditating, it doesn't mean you have to meditate longer. It doesn't mean you have to intensify your concentration. This would be gearing up the fire. It means instead deal directly with the body and crush it. And we don't mean crush the physical body as uh, hurting the body. We're never ever allowed to do that. We're going to speak about this method more fully, but does anybody have any, any reaction to hearing this kind of advice? Remember that your microphone is off. So if you want to speak up, please turn your microphone on. Because after you share, or if you share, I'm going to share with you Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, his reaction to hearing this advice from the president of the Yesh- Academy of the Yeshiva. From the president of the Yeshiva in Gan Eden, when he heard this advice. Do you want to hear what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said? I'm going to read you from the Zohar. Gachen Rabbi Shimon v'nashik la'afra. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai bent down and kissed the earth. Amar, he said, Mila, Mila, avasrach radifna miyayma dahavina. He was speaking to the words of wisdom and he said, Word, word, I have run after you from the day that I was born. V'hashda and now this word has become known to me from the root and source of everything. So while a regular person hears this advice, they might be daunted, they might be unnerved or nervous. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, when he heard this advice, he immediately bent down, kissed the earth and started to speak to the wisdom. And he said, wisdom, word, word. I run after you from the day I was born. And now it has become known to me this from the root and source of everything. Why was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai so excited to hear this advice? I didn't see anybody else dancing or clapping their hands. <laughs> so the great Hasidic mentor, Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman, explains Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's excitement. He said, that up until he heard this advice, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai thought that the only way to have any effect on the body spiritually is by just gearing up the fire. Meaning the body itself, you can't really make any impression on it. So what you do is you just intensify meditation, intensify spirituality, and this way you affect the body. Once he heard this advice, he understood that there's some inherent quality within the body that the body itself can come to have a first degree relationship with Hashem. That by going through this process, the body could then be ignited even with just a small spark. Whereas normally the body can have a relationship with Hashem that's a second degree relationship. That's like through hearing. You hear something, it's a second degree relationship. Then there's the first degree relationship. That's the relationship of seeing something with your own eyes. When you behold something with your own eyes, it's etched on your soul. You have a first degree relationship with it. 
Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was so moved. He was so inspired because he understood that the body itself can have a first degree relationship with Hashem. And this is why he was so excited. He gave a, a parable. Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman gave a parable that he heard from his own mentor. He said like this, the king decided that he's going to share his treasures. He's going to show his treasures to all the citizens in his land. And he made an appointed day. And he said, this day will come. Everybody will come to the city square. You'll be able to see my precious treasures that I never show anybody. Everybody was so excited. So they came on that appointed day. They were going to unlock the treasure chests, And then suddenly they couldn't find the keys. He couldn't find the keys. What are we going to do? So the ministers quickly, you know, huddle. They put their heads together and they said, we know those of us who have seen these treasures are going to get up on the podium and we're going to describe the treasures to the public. And they're going to be moved by hearing about the beauty of these treasures. So that's what they did. They got up and they started to describe in very beautiful, prolific terms, the king's treasures. Very moving and inspiring for those who wanted to see the treasures. Then suddenly along comes the blacksmith. He brings his hammer and two smashes. He knocks the locks off the treasure chest and suddenly everybody is able to see the treasures in the king's treasure trust. And that's how it is in our situation. Yes, you can explain to the body. You can give the body a second degree relationship with Hashem. But why do that if you can see, show the body with its own eyes Hashem and then a small little spark of fire will set the body on fire. So this is what we're working at now and remember that this Tanya was written as an exchange for a private audience with the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe said, I no longer have time to see everybody who comes to press and see me. So please take this book instead of a private audience. So imagine that these words are given to you as personal advice from the author of the Tanya. You're having a private audience with him and you're telling him you have a numb heart. And he says, listen, I'm going to share with you this advice of the Zohar. I'm going to teach you how to apply it and use it. How precious we would, how much we would prize these words, how much we would treasure them. So that's what we're getting here right now. His personal advice to us personally, how to deal with this condition. Okay, so we're on the next page. And the analogy quoted from the Zohar, we see that. The wood is made receptive to the flame rather than the flame being increased or improved to the point where it overwhelms the wood. Similarly with the insensitive heart. Timtum halev must be eradicated by removing its underlying cause, as the Alter Rebbe will soon conclude. Rather than overwhelmed by increasing the intellectual light of the contemplation on the greatness of Hashem. So what does it mean? The light, is not, the light of the neshama is not penetrating the body. So the Alter Rebbe is going to explain now. Perush. The reference to the light of the soul, which in this case does not penetrate the body, means that the light of the soul and of the intellect does not illuminate to such an extent as to prevail over the coarseness of the body. So we have this divine soul. The divine soul is so aloof, it doesn't directly affect the body. How does it share its inspiration with the body? That's through the intellect. Through the intellect of the divine soul, we become inspired and suddenly our heart is moved. Think of those times where you heard an inspiring idea. When you were meditating about Hashem and suddenly you had an emotional response, that's a gift. 
the fact that your physical heart started being faster, that your physical heart was overwhelmed with love, with passion, because of a divine idea, that's a gift. That means that the light of the soul shone in your body. What's light? Light is takes a dark place and suddenly illuminates it. It's now light in there. It used to be dark and now it's light. The body is dark. Suddenly this intellect of the divine soul comes and speaks to it. And then there is an emotional response. This is the light of the soul shining within the body. But we're having a hard time. The soul is understanding. The soul is trying to share. And yet there's a blockage. It's not working. Now, the problem with this person in whom it's not working is not that he's not thinking. It's not that he's not meditating properly. He's taking all the right steps. Thus, although he understands and meditates in his mind on the greatness of God, Yet that which he understands is not apprehended and implanted in his mind to the point where it enables him to prevail over the coarseness of the heart. And the reason for this is Mahmas Khumriyusan Vegasusan, because of the degree of their the minds and hearts, coarseness and crassness. It's not able to penetrate because the mind and the heart are coarse and crass. Now, like we spoke about in the beginning of the chapter, really this chapter is dealing with Timtum Halev, the coarseness of the heart. But here, this advice of the Zohar refers also to that of that condition of the coarseness of the mind. So here, the altar is now saying their coarseness and their crassness, the mind and the heart's coarseness and crassness. Not because there's actually a problem with the heart itself. It's because there's something else bothering, obstructing and obscuring. The altar is now going to explain what that causes. The cause of this deficiency is the arrogance of the klipa of the animal soul, which exalts itself above the holiness of the light of the divine soul, so that it obscures and darkens its light. So the klipa and sitra achra, actually, as we're going to see at the end of this chapter, are substanceless. There is nothing to it. It doesn't make sense that they don't dissipate when the light is on. You know, like the little kid is screaming, I have a monster in my room, monster! And the mommy comes running and turns the light on. There's no monster. All you needed to do was turn on the light and the monster's gone. It was nothing. It was just dark shadows. Substanceless. That's what the Sitra Akhra is. Substanceless. There's nothing to it. As soon as the divine soul shows up, as soon as it shines, it should naturally dissipate. And yet, in a very strange manner, it's not. It's staying there. What is the reason for that? And that's because of its arrogance. It's a very strange thing. It's a certain power that Hashem... We have to have freedom of choice, right? So even though it's totally substanceless, even though it's totally substanceless, Nevertheless, it has this certain chutzpah that it's able to obscure the light of the divine soul. That's its power. It really has no power. And the way to deal with it is by crushing it. As soon as you shatter it, it's gone. It dissipates. And the heart is once again receptive. 
Vilazais Sarah Lavacha Ulhashpila La Afar. Therefore one must crush it and cast it down to the ground, just as in the previously quoted analogy, the beam is splintered so that it will catch fire. So it's not because you weren't meditating properly, and it's not because your heart is not good enough, it's because of the chutzpah, the arrogance, the brazenness of the sitra achra. How are we gonna get rid of this condition? We're gonna have to crush the sitra achra. How are we gonna do that? It's not that simple. It hurts. I'm just telling you now, it hurts. The Alter Rebbe now proceeds to explain how this is accomplished. He points out that the personality of the Benoni is his animal soul. When the Benoni says, I, he's referring to his animal soul. Thus, by crushing his own spirit, he crushes the Sitra Achra and thereby enables the light of the soul to penetrate himself. So you're going to crush the Sitra Achra by crushing your, your own eye, which sounds very difficult. And that's because the eye that you identify with, the eye that we identify with, is our animal soul. The Alter Rebbe now describes the way to crush the Sitra Achra. This means that one must crush the Sitra Achra and cast it to the ground by setting aside a point in times for humbling oneself and considering himself despicable and contemptible as is written. This is a term from Tehillim. Nivzev Einav Nimas. Doesn't say do this all the time. This is a dangerous prescription for some times. And we're going to speak about it. We're not going to just, you know, leave the chapter hanging. We're going to speak about it as the chapter develops. The author will specify very, very clearly. Now, a broken heart leads to a broken spirit. The spirit being the sitra achra. Okay? So in chapter 51 in Tehillim, David HaMelech says, Zivche Elokim Ruach Nishbara. Lev nishbar v'nidka elokim lo sivza. That means the sacrifices to Hashem are a broken spirit. Oh Hashem, you shall not despise a broken, crushed heart. So on a simple level, you translate it as this. What's the sacrifice that you bring to Hashem? The sacrifice that you bring to Hashem is the person's broken spirit. But that's not how the Zohar translates it. The Zohar translates it. That the sacrifice that you're bringing to Hashem is the broken spirit of the Sitra Achra. But what is the way to break the spirit of the Sitra Achra? Is by breaking your own heart. So we're not breaking our own spirit. We're breaking the spirit of the Sitra Achra. And how are we breaking the spirit of the Sitra Achra? By breaking our own heart. Why? Why? So let's look and see what the Alter Rebbe says. Shehi hi ha'adam atzmai babenanim. Which, in the case of the Benonim, the Sitra Achra is the very man himself. So do you hear what the Altar is saying here? He's saying that this is the very man himself. The Sitra Achra is the very man himself. Is that disheartening? Does that, like, make you so sad? So I want to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story of King Shlomo. One time, three merchants came to King Shlomo the wise King Solomon with a court case. They were traveling together. They had a lot of shared money. 
Shabbos was approaching, so they dug a hole in the ground. They buried the money till after Shabbos. Shabbos was over. They come to retrieve the money, and the money is gone. The only person who could have taken it was one of the merchants, and they were fighting with each other who was the guy who stole the money. So they brought the case to King Shlomo. And King Shlomo said, wow, this is a difficult case. Come back to me tomorrow. So they come back to the king's court the next day, and the king says, we'll deal with the case soon, but in the meantime, I see that you guys are very good businessmen, very sharp minds. I want your advice on something. I got a letter from a king from a distant country, and he wants my opinion, and I want to hear your opinion. So there was a little boy and a little girl who were best friends. They grew up together, and they promised each other that they're going to get married. And they said to each other, if either of us decides to marry somebody else, we're going to ask the other one's permission. And that's what happened. They grew up. The little girl moved away. She got older. She turned into a young woman. And she was going to marry somebody else. And then she remembered her promise. So she traveled back to her hometown with presents for this little boy, who was now a young man, to ask him for permission to marry her fiancé and to give him these presents to appease him. So she comes back to her hometown, she meets her old friend, she gives him the presents and she says, please, you know, she found somebody else, she'd like to marry him. And he gives her his full hearted blessing. And he says, keep the money, use it to start your new life. You know, it's noble enough that you came to ask me for permission, please, no hard feelings, marry the man of your choice. And he lets her go. She's traveling back and an old robber meets her on the way and he steals her money. And she is livid. Not only is she livid, she's so disturbed by his unnoble behavior. She starts crying and she says to him, do you know my story? She tells him her whole story and she says, look, this young man could have taken this money. It would have been his. And yet he refused the money in such a noble gesture and he gave it to me. And you, what claim do you have to this money? What a low down person you are. How dare you steal my money that doesn't belong to you? And guess what? The old thief's heart was moved and he gave her back the money. And she went back home. So King Shlomo now turns to the three merchants and he said, the king wants to know, who is truly the hero of the story? Is it the young woman who kept her word and made sure to ask for permission? Is it the young man who with a full heart gave her permission and plus gave her her money back? Or is it the thief who, even though he could have stolen the money, gave the money back? So one merchant said, I definitely think it was the young girl. You know, all these years passed. She was a little girl when she made this promise. Really, why did she have to make that trip and bring gifts? What a noble young woman. And then the other merchant says, no, it was the young man. You know, he was such a noble person. He had such a good heart. So full-heartedly, he gave her permission without a grudge to marry somebody else. And the third guy says, I think it was the thief. You know, nobody was watching. He was stronger. He could have kept the money. And nevertheless, he gave her the money. And so King Shlomo said, you are the thief. The fact that you identify with the thief out of all three people in the story, that's who you think is the most noble, tells me that you are the thief. Give the money back. And he did. And so that's how it is in our life. Who is the self that we identify with on a day-to-day basis? When we say, I am hungry, I am tired, I am frustrated, it's, our divi- it's not our divine soul that we're speaking about. It's our animal soul that we say, I, I am hungry, I am tired, I am in a bad mood. And because we identify with the animal soul, it comes to be as though the person himself. Is it the actual person himself? 
No, of course not. Our deepest, truest self is way beyond that. I'm going to tell you another story. This is a story of the author of the author of the Tanya. He raised his orphaned grandson on his own knees. His daughter passed away in an act of self-sacrifice before her son even turned three. And the little boy grew up on the Alter Rebbe's knees. So one day he's sitting on his grandfather's lap and he's stroking his grandfather's beard. And he's saying, Zayda, Zayda. And so the Alter Rebbe looks at the little boy and goes, that's not Zayda, that's Zayda's beard. So then he puts his hands on his grandfather's head and he says, Zayda, Zayda. And he goes, that's not Zayda, that's Zayda's head. And so then he does his hands and he hugs his body and he keeps saying, that's not me, that's my hands. So the little boy gets off his grandfather's lap. He hides behind the door. And then all of a sudden he cries out like in an alarming voice, Zayda! And all of a sudden his grandfather says, what is it? And he goes, that is Zayda. The person that responded to my call of alarm, that is Zayda. Now, do you remember how the Alter Rebbe defined a Jewish person in chapter 18? He defined a Jew as somebody, even if he lived a sinful life, his whole previous lifetime, when it comes to that defining moment of whether he's going to choose Hashem and die or turn his back away from Hashem, rip himself apart, the overwhelming majority of Jewish people in Jewish history, even those who weren't observant, even those who were low, of low character, gave up their life for Hashem rather than tear themselves away from Him. At that defining moment, they chose Hashem. And that's because it's an undefinable nature. That's because at that moment, they really showed who they are. It's like the Zayda who says, what? What is it? That's who we are at the defining moment. But that's not our everyday consciousness. I want to read you something very fascinating that I came across recently, an article on Chabad.org by Rabbi Yosef Landa, quoting Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, the famous father of psychology. You know what he said about himself? He said, religion is a universal obsessional neurosis. He described himself as a godless Jew. He described himself as one of the most dangerous enemies of religion. And yet, in 1930, he penned a preface for a Hebrew translation of one of his works called Totem and Taboo. In it, he characteristically describes himself as having no Jewish standpoint and making no exceptions in favor of Jewry. He describes himself as having abandoned all common characteristics of his fellow Jewish people. In light of that, Now, read what he says next, okay? This is an excerpt of the translation to the Hebrew book. He describes himself, and he says, No reader will find it easy to put himself in the emotional position of an author who is completely estranged from the religion of his fathers, but who has never yet repudiated his people, who feels that he is, in his essential nature, a Jew, and has no desire to alter that. If the question were put to him, since you have abandoned all these common characteristics of your countrymen, what is left to you that is Jewish? He would reply, in speaking of his own self, a very great deal, and probably its very essence. Remember, this is a guy who calls himself godless. 
And yet he says that if you're going to ask him what's left to you that is Jewish, he's going to say a very great deal and probably its very essence. He could not now express that essence clearly in words. But someday, no doubt, it will become accessible to the scientific mind. He was trying to define, but of course it eluded him, he was trying to define his deepest essence, which is the divine soul. The divine soul is a part of Hashem himself. Could he define it? Can a scientist define it? It's like the fisherman who goes fishing with his net and those fishing squares are five inches apart. He comes back and he said, I made a very important scientific discovery. Did you know that there is not one creature in the ocean that's smaller than five inches? Well, maybe if you had a smaller net, you'd find smaller creatures. Science is not the way to define the divine soul, and therefore Sigmund Freud could not define it. He could not qualify it. It eluded him, and yet he knew it was there. He said, that's me and my essence. So who are we in our essence? It's like Albert Einstein is quoted to have said, I don't know if this is truly his quote, but not everything that can be counted counts. And not everything that counts can be counted. This is not something that can be counted or measured. It defies all description. It defies all measurement. We cannot grasp it because it is Hashem himself. It is totally undefinable. So if we want to describe a Jew, he is definitely his divine soul. That's not what we're talking about over here. What we're talking about here is the everyday consciousness that we live with. If our everyday consciousness was our divine soul consciousness, we would be behaving differently all the time. We wouldn't have a struggle at all. We would be living Mashiach. But that's not how it is yet. Right now, the consciousness that we live with is our animal soul consciousness. We identify with it so deeply that it comes to be as though the very man himself. Now, we're going to develop this idea more fully coming up in the chapter, but I'm going to wrap up what we said until now. So we said like this. We're going to now look at another spiritual condition that can get in the way of worshiping Hashem. And that is Timtum Halev, a dull heart. The problem with this condition is it won't let you pray properly. It won't let you exercise the amount of restraint that a person of your caliber could be exercising. And that's because your heart is dull. What's the advice? How are we going to deal with this? We're going to take the advice of the Zohar. The Zohar says, a log that won't catch fire, you need to splinter it. A body that won't catch the light of the neshama needs to be crushed. What is the light of the neshama? It's the divine intellect. That when you understand something, it creates a physical, emotional response. Even this person is meditating and yet it's not working for him. It means there is an ailment here. What is the ailment? It's the arrogance of the klipa that is obscuring the divine light from shining within his body. And in order to take care of this condition, you need to crush it. How are we going to crush the sitra achra? By crushing our own heart. Because in the person who is not yet a tzaddik, our everyday heart is the heart of the sitra achra. And by crushing our own heart, we will break the spirit of the sitra achra. So, going to close class now and open up for questions and discussion. Everybody is on mute, so if you have something to share.
please turn off your microphone. Please turn on your microphone. Uh, Shirley, you want to turn your microphone on? Press unmute for yourself. Okay. Hi. Okay, so I've been meaning to ask this for a very long time. You know, in the Shema, when it says, we're always being told that don't go after your eyes, don't go after your heart. But then there's other moments that you specifically have to use your heart. I know that I... I do feel Hashem literally in my body. I get excited. I, I get chilled. I, it's a physical thing, and that comes from my heart and my emotions. So now we have our our divine soul that's in our mind. We have the animal soul that's in our blood. The ruach is is the channel to both, right? It's the bridge. So is the heart good or not? Is the heart considered the bridge or? How come sometimes it's supposed to be good and sometimes it's considered to be bad? I'm not sure if that makes sense. So your question is, of course it makes it makes sense. The heart is actually the home to both, the divine soul and the animal soul. The animal soul is in the left part of the heart and the divine soul is in the right part of the heart. And your question could be taken even a step further. And that is, is the animal soul good or bad? The animal soul itself, if you want to characterize it and typify it, it boils down to one thing, and that is a pleasure seeker. Pleasure in and of itself could be harnessed either for good or for evil. Its natural default of the animal soul is to seek the pleasures of this world. But somebody who successfully strips it of those filthy garments turns it into a pleasure seeker for Hashem. And then it becomes a very vibrant force. Uh, okay, I've been, that, thank you. It's been forever bothering me. That makes sense. So, so the heart is involved, but it's a different side of it. As even- if, as if. The animal soul is primarily heart-based. So it starts off with the emotions, and then it harnesses the mind to serve its own purposes. On the other hand, the divine soul is mind-based. So it starts out with appreciating the positive qualities in something and then generating an emotion. While the emotions of the animal soul are much more vibrant, they're bubbling, they're excited, they're also much less stable because When you developed a philosophy about something and then you have emotions based on that, that's not going anywhere anytime soon. That's staying because you developed a philosophy. It has become assimilated with your personality. And therefore, when you develop emotions based on what you understand, that's really a part of you. On the other hand, when it's just, it seems so much more real, those passionate desires of the animal soul, not that real. Not that real. They're very passionate, but just like they can love this, two seconds later, they can love that. There's no philosophy behind it. It's just whatever gets me excited at this moment. So much more mercurial, much less stable, very volatile. On the other hand, it's a great force if we can harness it to serve Hashem. The only one who can truly harness it to serve Hashem is the person who transforms it, and that's the tzaddik. For everybody else, it comes in increments. Okay, now I'm going to look at the chat for a minute. I see a question. Uh, can you give an example of crushing the heart? Uh, I'll tell you why I'm not going to give an example of crushing the heart, because the Alter Rebbe is going to give the examples of crushing the heart, and it's going to come up 
in this chapter. So instead of me just saying it, you could either read it on your own, but I prefer that we explore the idea together and give it a full treatment. And so instead of doing a halfway job, let's just say we'll deal with it next week. I have a question. Yeah, Sheila. Yeah, I, I had a very visceral reaction. Okay, great. <laughs> Huge, huge. And a lot of it is because, you know, when you talked about washing the bus, I took it very, hear me? Yeah, I hear you. you talked about crushing the body. I took it very literally at first, thinking that at times when we have physical ailments, we get very close to Hashem. Our body physically gets crushed. And as a result, our emuna gets strengthened, our resolve to be close to Hashem gets strengthened through that. And, oh, thank you. And, sorry, <laughs> my dog just, and so, um, so, so there's something about that, but then when we get to the despicable and contemptible part. Okay, so. It's taking what happens to us on one level that strengthens Muna, but turning it into this very visceral, yeah. Okay, so when you're talking about the body being crushed, when the body goes through physical hardships, like, God forbid, a sickness or an ailment or a challenge, at that time, a person feels very close to Hashem. When we're speaking about crushing the body over here in this chapter, we're not talking about actually physically hurting the body. We're not even allowed to do that. We're talking about hurting the spirit of the body, which is the animal soul. The closeness that you speak about of experiencing such deep closeness to Hashem when a person goes through physical sickness, God forbid, is something that we visited in chapter 26. And that is that when a person experiences hardship, although it hurts so much, they should know at that moment they are getting messages from Hashem's hidden world, from his world of thought. Hashem is showing that person an extra measure of closeness. When a person experiences pain or hardship, they are experiencing a deep level of closeness to Hashem. And so that amuna that you're talking about is a response to that extra measure of closeness that Hashem showed them. This was not the person's own doing. This was something that you know, was given to them from Hashem. And again, a person only daven for open and revealed goodness. But here we're talking about something different. We're talking about a person is crushing their spirit, which is really, they're crushing their ego. Their yeah. ego stems yeah. from the animal soul. Right. right. It's so, first of all, it's not even, this chapter is so atypical, even in Chabad teachings. But it's so not what we're used to in our world of just like pump the ego, make them feel better. I know I told yeah, this before yeah. to you, but you know that I, I, when my daughter was in preschool, she had a fellow classmate and she was also, she worked in the office. We used to chat every once in a while. And she told me that she was taking her son to neurologist appointments. I didn't ask her why. And she walked in one morning with a book under her arm, this huge tome. It was a book by this lady who is very liberal in her method and is all about, you know, just telling the kid how wonderful you are. You're the best. Everybody loves you. You're God's gift to mankind. And the neurologist looked at her and said, don't tell me you're reading that book. And she said, why? And he said, you don't understand. You're ruining your kid when you treat your kid that way. And then he told her about the study where these kids from different nationalities were, getting, were tested on their aptitude. 
And who did the best? The Korean kids. Who thought they did the worst? The Korean kids. Who did the worst? The American kids. And who thought they did the best? The American kids. Having that kind of unhealthy ego is poison. It's horrible. Of course, you have to definitely be there for them and praise them and give them unconditional praise and global praise. But that's only one side. You also have to say, you know, I see you could did you you got you know this grade on your math test. You can do better. Try a little harder. Not like you know whatever. It's good. I know you did your best, honey. No, do better next time. I didn't see you study. So so we're talking about crushing the ego here, which is the root of all evil. The root of all evil. It is truly the root of all evil.